Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Monday, January 29th, 2024. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. I am playing with the laws of time and space here. I'll just concede because I'm not actually in my home studio. I am in for reasons that will become apparent in just a few moments, Washington, D.C. right now, where over the course of the week, I will have a great many updates about what's going on in a trial that has been 12 years in the making. Now, if you are a Canadian, as most of you are, and as I am, you may wonder how on earth this is the case. But in the United States of America, this is what passes for justice, which is a discussion we probably can and should have at another occasion. But uh, the reason I am in D.C. is because my good friend and longtime colleague Mark Stein is on trial for daring to call a climate scientist who he believes is a fraud a fraud and daring to call that scientist's seminal work, the hockey stick graph, a fraudulent piece of science. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into the scientific debate here because at its core, this is, I believe, a free speech question. Michael Mann, that uh, scientist, made this hockey stick graph that showed that for basically the entirety of the world, <laughs> I'm being a bit dramatic there, but for a tremendous period of time, like a thousand years, there had been no warming in the temperature at all. And then the Industrial Revolution hits and it just shoots right up there. You can see that graph on your screen. And this is a graph that's been tremendously influential. It was sent out to many Canadian households, I believe, under Paul Martin. It might have been under Jean Chrétien, so don't quote me on that. I'm not making a, an authoritative scientific statement. Don't worry. But the reason it's important to talk about here is because we have a one size fits all narrative on a lot of things that are passed off as science. We saw this during COVID and we've certainly seen it during climate. There's no room for dissent. There's no room for debate. And in this case, when someone put for, puts forward an alternative, they have been mired in litigation for more than a decade, for 12 years. Well, it's finally gone to trial. We've wrapped up the first two weeks of the trial in Washington, D.C., and I wanted to head down for the grand finale. So I'll be giving you reports because this is not just a Canadian Canadian, American, British issue. This is something that affects a global debate and discussion that, quite frankly, is never allowed to take place. Well, there has been some tremendous coverage from the courtroom that I've been following, courtesy of Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer. They've been on the show in the past. They have this podcast called Climate Change on Trial. Now, this isn't just a recap where they parse and discuss what happened in each day's proceedings. They do something which is so tremendous, and I'm not aware of anyone ever doing this apart from them. They take the transcripts, the court transcripts that stenographers are furiously writing all day, and they get them reenacted by actors, again, on a very incredibly tight turnaround so that you can literally hear what went down in court that day and hear the highlights of it. So I wanted to talk about this on the eve of my arrival in Washington with Phelan McAleer. Phelan, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today from Washington. Thank you, Andrew. A pleasure to be on your show. Now, I've heard, I mean, how are you managing to be in Washington? I, I know this is very difficult for people and you're two weeks in now. Yes, um, Washington. I mean, we spent a, a year of our lives in Washington. Actually, when we were doing our documentary on global warming, I don't know, 13 years ago, we spent a year in Washington to launch it. And I'll tell you, it, it's, 
It hasn't improved any. It's just got quieter, actually. It's a kind of a dead city now. There was a lot of life about it back then, but I think the COVID lockdowns and, uh, and have really killed the city. Yeah, and it's one of these places like, I mean, Ottawa in Canada is slightly better, but it just is a, a dismal city, and the, the people there who work there, not the, the locals, are uh, not particularly tolerable in a lot of cases. But you're in the courtroom, you've been covering this. Just before we get into the case itself, tell me about the way you're packaging it, yeah. because th this was literally a medium that you pioneered, was it not? Yes, yes. Um... And I expect the New York Times to invent it in a few years' time and be credit <laughs> for it. But yes, so what we do is we get the transcripts uh, every day and uh, we work out what was the most dramatic clashes of that day, what was the most interesting evidence, and we parse, we break that down. We send it over to voice actors in Los Angeles who are three hours behind, and uh, they reenact it under a director. I mean, of course, you've got these amazing uh, uh, Hollywood voice actors. And uh, then it goes to an editor in an undisclosed location who works fiercely overnight to edit it. And it's in your inbox the next morning, hopefully, or, or early morning. And you can hear what happened that day in the previous day in the courtroom. Um, and if you're in Australia, Mark Stein knows more about time zones than I do. But <laughs> it means you, you're, all, you're getting a a, a reenactment of the drama of the courtroom almost just after it happens. Uh, so, you know, we do comment on it, but really we let people speak for themselves because that's what people want to hear. So it's uh, no one, no one has done it before. Uh, it's, it's, it's a medium for the podcast, for the new podcast world. Um, to me, you know, to me, it's, it's the way all court cases should be covered. And, uh, you know, it's people, the, the response has been amazing. Opinion, opinion, I would say, is is divided on our re, on our uh, reenactment of Mark Stein. Uh, <laughs> huge praise and huge criticism. But, hey, everyone's a critic. Well, yeah, well, the problem, I mean, Mark himself has joked about this. He, he says no matter where he is in the world, he sounds like he's from somewhere else. Like his accent doesn't quite fit into any particular mold. So it's like, I don't even know how you cast that. A voice actor that has to do a Stein accent is basically the only national, there's no nationality, it's just Stein, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll allow some forgiveness there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, our actor, I think, was born in Australia, kind of grew up in England, and now lives in America. So almost like- Oh, a so he, yeah, so he, he actually maybe can do the, uh, the, Steinian, the Steinian accent there. Let's talk about the case itself here, because it's it's a defamation case. But one of the issues that has reared its head in a lot of the proceedings up to this point, and we, we've seen glimpses of it in the trial, is that Michael Mann wants to make this a trial about climate change. He wants to basically, it seems, say, I'm the expert, I'm the scientist, and we're going to talk, debate the science, when that's really not what the case is even about. Yeah, Definitely, he, he want, I am the expert, that's right, and I shall be all unchallenged, God and man at, in Washington. And, uh, you know, that's not the way it should work, but that's, as you're, you're right, that's not even what this case is about. This case is about whether you have the right to challenge authority, whether you have the right to challenge scientists, whether you have the right to challenge scientists about a huge matter of public policy. I mean, maybe Michael Mann's right about the science, but he's not, he's not a politician. He's not 
public policy person. He doesn't get to tell you what you should do with the science. There's so much. I mean, if you listen to to the reenactment from from Thursday, uh, you know, there was a huge Mark Stein and Michael Mann had a huge debate about the science. I mean, that in itself shows there is a debate to be had, and that's where free speech comes in. That's where the right to challenge authority uh, comes in, and. What Michael Mann is saying is, what I say must go unchallenged. What the scientists I agree with must go unchallenged. And that is just a recipe for disaster, for society, for free speech, just for for a, a productive, pro, a progressive society going forward. How are we ever going to progress if what people say now mm. is what we must obey and must only, and, and, and is unchallengeable? And I don't want to get into the ins and outs of, of defamation law, but there is at its core a, a set of criteria you need to prove if you want to sue someone for defamation. And one of these in pretty much any common law jurisdiction is that you have to have actually suffered. It's not enough to say someone said this mean defamatory thing. It actually had to have landed, so to speak. And this was something quite fascinating on Thursday. And I, I know it. there had been a buildup to it, but Michael Mann was on the stand and he has to account for something very difficult, which is how he can claim to have been irreparably defamed when his career has only gotten better in the interceding 12 years. He was at a state college in uh, Penn State before. Now he's in the Ivy League at University of Pennsylvania. He's a star in the media. He's published books. He's well regarded in the climate world. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like at its core, the only example of his character being maligned in his community was someone gave him a dirty look at a grocery store once well clean up an aisle nine you know uh it actually it came out and, and we must be grateful to mark stein for this because in his initial evidence he did say that he had a, a really mean stare from a man from a stranger in wegman's supermarket uh in uh, in in penn state or close to penn state mark got more details it actually happened in aisle nine uh, <laughs> mark, mark asked him to demonstrate it but that got struck down on objection i believe yeah he wanted to dem i was looking forward to, to michael mann sort of demonstrating the odious yeah. uh, stare that, that that affected him so badly um yes it was aisle nine and uh, he remembers it well um yeah this is a this is a problem and i suspect now the jury might not get that but the, the judge is very interested in the damages question because there are no damages man's career as as mark said has wafted from more you know up the up the stairs as you say he's promotion after promotion uh he he won a prize where he got a he won a prize for a hundred thousand dollars and he's made so much money in the intervening years he didn't remember getting the hundred thousand dollars that is how well he's been doing he's been on book and they produced his own self-evaluations of his career that he has to submit to his college college every year they they quoted his self-evaluations back to him he never mentioned the damage uh, of this appalling defamation but and then you know parties with leonardo dicaprio he actually said i have a bromance with leonardo dicaprio he introduced oh that was i heard someone reference bromance that was his word that was his word wow okay yes so um you know and it's funny he's michael mann after all so even when he's claiming that uh that he suffered irreparable damage he can't help the self-promotion right so this is you know oh woe is me i've had a miserable time 
But that party with Leo, oh my God, it was wonderful. That was a great, he actually said, I think, that was a great party, wow. And that time I introduced Clinton at the at the Terry McAuliffe fundraiser, wow, that was fun, you know. And yeah, and Al Gore, you know, and book tours. I've been to Iceland, I've been to Austria, I've lectured in Canada, He's even been to Canada. Um, yeah. And uh, that was that was described as, as a perk, you know. The jury's out and whether going to Canada is a perk or not. <laughs> but, um, uh, so yes, it was it was a tough one. Clean up in aisle nine was terrible. Don't forget, you're forgetting, uh, and, I, and I hope you're not going to face uh, another defamation trial for this, Andrew. But he also received three uh, upsetting emails: two from MustafaOverlord.com, sorry, MustafaOverlord at gmail.com, okay, and, and a third email from someone I think his name was Eric, who called him a loser. I received three emails worse than that in the last hour, I think, uh, to be honest. So that three, three, three nasty emails is, I'd say, a win. Yes, yes. No, no. I mean, look, I, Anne and I were just talking. When we made our uh, Not Evil, Just Wrong documentary questioning climate science, we and climate change activism, we got an email, I, I remember, but we were kind of new to the game, right? And we got an email from someone saying, you and your wife love pollution so much i hope your children are born handicapped wow and it's like wow wow and it's like okay i mean to me i mean as i as i you know i i mean i don't know but i've had worse on a tuesday night outside a belfast pub you know so like to me this is not damages this is just you know this is just, these are just people with with laptops uh, saying nasty things. And, you know, Mark made the point yesterday in his questioning, how do you know that, you know, he, Michael Mann said, I lost all this grant money. And, and as Mark said, you didn't lose it. The university lost it. But why don't you think that the university lost its grant money? Because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's senior football coach. One of its senior football coaches was in prison for raping children. Its president was fired and convicted of child endangerment for covering that up, as was the vice president for finance. Can you imagine the vice president for finance uh, being uh, prosecuted, being prosecuted for uh, child endangerment and going to prison? Can you imagine all the alumni writing, you know, thinking, I don't think I want to write checks to that institution just yet. So Mark was saying, surely it was the Sandusky uh, affair that affected financing, not Mark Stein's blog or Ron Simberg's blog that got 17,000 views over eight years. Yeah, and, and this is the thing as well that came up because, and again, not to rehash the, it is hard to cover adequately a case that has taken this long, but uh, Penn State w was going through a tremendous scandal and, and there was an aspect there where man was talking about, oh, he's lost all this grant funding. And Mark in his cross-examination of, of man, because Mark's self-representing, so he gets yeah. to do the honors instead of a lawyer, was pointing that to basically say, I mean, how do you know Penn State wasn't just losing grant funding because it was mired in all of this uh, controversy and man didn't really have a, a great answer yes that, that, that's it and and you know so there was the, the sandusky scandal and then by the way but michael mann you know as they pointed out he was you know defamed in lots of other mark stein and mark uh, and ron Sandberg weren't the only people in fact they were they were almost late to the show uh comparing what they did was they said look any university that would cover up for a child rapist like Jerry Sandusky, why wouldn't they cover up for their star climate uh, 
grant mm-hmm. uh, getter called Michael Mann. And, uh, and they were saying the investigation into Michael Mann after Climategate was a whitewash. And uh, there was lots of emails, by the way, from Mann to kind of back that up. But they were saying, what if they cover up for this guy, why wouldn't they cover up for that guy? And there was, there was the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is well, like... It's not one of these right-wing, uh, you know, rags like this show or National Review or anything, yeah. But it's also, it's read by every university administrator on the planet. It's read by every university mm-hmm. professor on the planet. There's nowhere more damaging for... It's like, it's like the, you know, it's like the Columbia Journalism Review talking about a senior journalist in America. They would be devastated. Their career might not recover from it. That's what the Chronicle of Higher Education is. It's that, it's that respected among those elites. And they had a, a whole article, Culture of Evasion, and they linked the Jerry Sandusky cover-up to a possible cover-up of the Michael Mann climate gate emails and dodgy because that was the linkage that that man found so extraordinarily offensive and defamatory yes. it was linked yes. wasn't linking him and what he's done to what sandusky has done it was about linking the school's treatment of both yes now michael mann keeps saying you compared me to jerry sandusky, sandusky. or you called me a child molester he yes. said at one point uh, yesterday uh, and, yeah. and- Mark Stein quite rightly says, we did not. We, we compared the investigations into you, mm-hmm. and you know that. So, you know, that's the, that's the crux of the case, actually. But, so he, you know, and I have to add, there was quite a moment in the court yesterday or in, on Thursday when, uh, when uh, the, 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 the Rand Simberg's lawyer produced all these uh, defamatory articles, including one uh, by the, my wife and colleague, Anne McElhinney, uh, who wrote about, uh, whose head, the headline on her blog post was Sandusky and Michael Mann, much in common, question mark. And that was six months before Ransenberg and Mark Stein wrote about it. So I, uh, Hopefully she's out of the statute of limitations well, now and she can't be sued for that. <laughs> actually, it's funny. We don't know the statute of limitations. I assume there is, but you never know uh, in America. I mean, they... they, they they're very fond of overturning their statute of limitations. Oh, they reopened it for, was it Bill Cosby, where they just like passed a law, like changing the statute of limitations, basically, uh, so that... And Kevin Spacey, actually, in New yeah. York, they, they did. They, they just said, oh, well, that old statute of limitations, yeah. we're going to give you a couple of years now where you can refile uh, uh, about your sexual assault on the 14th of September, 1973. And shock, horror, all these really rich celebrities are now being accused of, of sexually assaulting somebody on the 9th of November, 1967, you know, or 1972. Yeah. And how do you defend against that? Well, anyway, Anne McElhinney apparently defamed Michael Mann uh, six months before, in, in <laughs> 2011, before uh, Mark Stein uh, deigned to do it. One thing I'm going to be looking out for when I'm there this week that you can't really capture in in the podcast adequately, so I wanted to ask you about was the jury reaction to this, because you never know. I mean, Washington, D.C., to pick up a jury of D.C. residents is not going to inherently uh, favor a conservative commentator who's on trial. And I know that Mann's team has talked about, oh, they've name dropped like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Fox News to, I think, drive a wedge between Mark and the jury. But but do you see any reaction from the jury at all that, that suggests what they're interested in or, or what they're paying attention to? Funny, the jury are very good at playing, at, at having a poker face. Hmm. They haven't really reacted to much which is which is very interesting. Now, of course, they're a DC jury, and that's going to be tough. I mean, what's the DC? The population of DC ninety two percent Democrat. Um, uh, 
and, and Bill well, Nye, I should say, Bill Nye was like out there uh, in in the crowd, a friend of Michael Mann. So like, and see, he's name dropping Bill Nye and Leo DiCaprio and all these lefty uh, celebrity types. Yeah, and Bill Nye was out polluting, uh, allegedly out polluting the jury pool. Look, I just said that in court when the jury were outside waiting to be called. Bill Nye was out sitting among them, saying, "I'm a great fan of of Bill wow. Nye," allegedly, um, which is like talk about polluting the jury pool. But one thing I felt that got them really interested, and we haven't got to that in the evidence yet, uh, uh, is Michael Mann's fake Nobel Prize, Michael Mann's propensity to frequently and falsely claim he won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. Talk about stolen valor, right? So this is in a, in a court case where he is claiming to be defamed for his scientific valor and expertise. In the very complaint to the court, he falsely claimed to have won a Nobel Prize on three occasions. He falsely claimed in the complaint to have won it three times. Um, and he has frequently and falsely since then claimed to have won the Nobel Prize. Now, the jury, I could see the jury when they were, when during the opening speech, when that was put up on screen, I could see the jury going, you know, going like this, <laughs> really, you know, it's like, wow. You know, like, and they're kind of looking at him going like this. Now, Interestingly, when Mar when Mann was questioned by his own lawyer, the law they failed to mention that uh, because I think it's indefensible. Right? I don't think there's any answer to it. Nor, you know, the lawyer was throwing himself. And it's relatable to people. They understand that idea. I mean, anyone who's served in the military understands that idea of, of, of a stolen honor. Uh, no one could get away with doing that on their resume for a job at Starbucks, let alone in the scale that Mann has. Yeah. Yes. And... This is man who's saying I suffered, you know, this is man and man, I think he put up a 97 page CV to show how wonderful he was. And of course, if you have a 97 page CV, how can you say you suffered? But yes, no, this is, and I think, you know, the DC jury, they're probably professionals. They probably were, they probably are credentialed in some way. They understand credentials. They understand resumes. They understand honors. They understand medals. They may, you know, some of them may work for the, military industrial complex you know they understand ranks um so to, for, to um i mean i'm kind of gobsmacked by it and then it came out on thursday he basically to to a leading wikipedia editor and to a, a nasa scientist he accused another female scientist judith curry of sleeping her way into mm. her phd and I'm going, and everyone's going, like, and I'm thinking the DC jury, and then he pretended was kind of, a, oh, I, I'm actually on her side. I was actually in that email. I was condemning the the, the man who did it because that's whatever. And, I, and I'm looking. I'm going, no. Everyone knows that in this situation, it's not the man who comes out worst, not the superior man. It's the, you know, nowadays, of course, we're all me too. But everyone still thinks, wow, that woman slept her way to the top, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's what. You know, that's a major part. So he was trying to smear a fellow female scientist. Now, and not only smear her with, you know, by innuendo, he got all the facts wrong. He said Judith Curry went to Penn State to, as a, to do her PhD and slept with her advisor or slept with a member of staff. She went, she had her PhD completed before she went to Penn State. She went there as an employee, and I, I didn't qu wasn't quite spoken clearly enough in court. But it seems she started a relationship with a unmarried man, a man who had separated from his wife a year previously, another colleague. 
Mm. So he he completely he he smeared her with with not with no evidence, not with not misrepresent. He he completely got it wrong, and I suppose he deliberately got it wrong. And this is a man who claims details matter and in integrity matters and importance yeah. matters. And uh, when you look at the Michael Mann behind the laptop, it's a very different Michael Mann from the one in the witness box. And maybe the jury is going to see that. Well, if you want to get up to speed, do head over to wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to this show, so you must have a preferred podcast platform and check out Climate Change on Trial, presented by Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhenney. And I'll have updates throughout the course of the week, and we'll have to get uh, Phelan and or Anne back for a, a recap at the end there. But uh, Phelan, well done, and we will see you soon. Thanks, Andrew. All the best. Bye. Thank you, Phelan. Always enjoy talking to Phelan and his other half, Ann McElhenney. I actually had the great privilege of staying with them at their place in, I was I was going to say Northern Ireland. That that means something different. I meant like the north of the Republic of Ireland, but now I'm going to get like shot by someone. So anyway, uh, ignore that, disregard that. Ann and Phelan, lovely people. Looking forward to seeing them in D.C. As I mentioned, we're flirting with the boundaries of time and space, if not outright pushing them. But we are still going to keep with a tradition as, uh, well, that's what we do here on the Andrew Lawton Show anyway, or so I've declared just now. And on the Monday shows, we always check in with our very good friend, Chris Sims, who is the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And Chris, it is always, always wonderful to talk to you. This is, I mean, you and I, the carbon tax is the gift that keeps on giving, not for Canadian taxpayers, but certainly for uh, shows that try to respect the Canadian taxpayers. Uh, this report came out late last week that the Parliamentary Budget Office, as I understand, has has confirmed. I mean, I think you could probably intuit this, but they've confirmed that it will cost Canadians half a billion this year. That's not the carbon tax. That's the GST on the carbon tax. Am I, I feel like I'm misreading that number, but that's the 500 million a year just on the tax on the tax. That's correct. And there's certain evergreen things that we get through email at the Taxpayers Federation. Uh, most of it is about accountability or somebody personally, you know, struggling with their tax load. But one of the frequent flyers is, oh my goodness, I'm paying a tax on the tax. Yes, you are. So it's quite easy to see on your home heating bill, for example, or if you get propane tanks filled up outside of your trailer, if you live in a mobile home, take a look at the receipt. The sales tax, the GST is added after the carbon tax. That means that the GST is on top of the carbon tax in addition to. And so we've been preaching and teaching about this now for years, but it feels really validating to have the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is an arm's length, independent, nonpartisan group that is supposed to watchdog the government saying, yes, Canadians are spending close to half a billion dollars per year with the GST on the carbon tax. And by the year 2030, Andrew, this made my eyes pop out. It's going to be around a billion dollars a year. Wow. I, I yeah. mean, the, the idea of a tax on a tax is incredibly offensive because the point of a sales tax, if we're going to endorse that that's a legitimate uh, revenue collection tool for government, is that it is taxing a good or a service, uh, of which a tax is neither. So to tax a tax undermines it. I mean, just go back to uh, in Ontario, where I'm from. Before we had the harmonized sales tax, you had a PST, which was the Ontario sales tax of 8%. 
And then you had the GST, which for a time was was 7%. Imagine if they did not apply those taxes simultaneously. They put the GST on. So your $100 uh, purchase is now $105. And then they put the PST on top of that. So now you're paying 8% on the 105 instead of 8% on the, the 100. People would be outraged about that. On the carbon tax, I, I think the government's trying to just conceal this from people because there is no real justification for it. Yes, exactly. To really put it like, okay, if I bought this piece of this roll of tape, okay, at the store, I pay, not in Alberta, I don't pay a provincial sales tax, but I pay 5% federal sales tax because this is an object in time and space. Yeah. And so if that was $1, you pay $1.05 because of Correct. that 5% GST. Correct. Yeah. But a tax is just this amorphous blood sucking action of government. And they're now taxing you on that tax. In fact, a lot of people ask us, isn't this illegal? It sure feels illegal. It sure feels unfair and unconstitutional. Uh, I personally would love to see a clear declaration or a ruling coming from a high court somewhere saying you cannot tax on a tax. I think what they're trying to get around here is that the government tries to call this a carbon pricing mechanism or mm -hmm. a pollution reduction mechanism. We had part, part of that fight at the Supreme Court a few months ago. Is this really a tax? Well, anybody who's paying the carbon tax certainly knows that this is a tax. And now, again, having the PBO come out and say in cold dollars and cents, this is how much people are paying. This should have people outraged. They should be emailing their member of parliament, phoning their member of parliament saying, how dare mm -hmm. you be fleecing us for an extra half billion dollars per year so you can go waste it on some nonsense like hockey rinks or overseas trips on a tax. It, it's gross. And so people should definitely speak up. I find right now, that the opposition is very susceptible and very open to listening to people when it comes to affordability and tax mm -hmm. ripoffs. So now is the time to get your opposition MPs up in arms over this stuff to make them commit to scrapping this stuff once they're in government, if they become and, government. Yeah, and I mean, obviously th this is an explicit tax on a tax here, yeah. but there's also a, a more hidden and a, admi admittedly more oblique tax on a tax because the, the whole point of the carbon tax is that it increases the price of everything. There are a lot of down market carbon taxes that are baked in. So for example, if you buy a, an orange from the grocery store that had to be shipped there and the, the, the vessel and the truck that had to ship you those oranges, they had to pay more in fuel, that carbon carbon tax that they paid is buried in the apple driving up that price. And then again, the sales tax on that increased price. So uh, the point of that is not to just confuse people, but to say it, it compounds. I mean, at every level of the supply chain that has a carbon tax that it has to pay, that's all getting passed to the consumer. And then the sales tax is getting put on all of that. Yes, exactly. As Andrew just explained, folks, keep like picture it in your mind. Grocery costs, I realize, aren't always sales tax, but the, the, the point stands generally. <laughs> oh, for sure. Because you've baked in the carbon tax there, mm -hmm. for sure. So like, like picture an apple coming from the Okanagan of British Columbia, okay? Picture that person who has to drive there when they're picking it, paying the carbon tax. And now keep in mind that quite often we'll use barns, right? If you're, if you're a farmer, say you've got a poultry barn or a pork barn, Farmers right now still need to pay the carbon tax on their barn heating and they have to pay it for drying their, drying their grain. 
what eats grain? Well, everything, okay? There's the baseline of your food chain where the carbon tax kicks in. And now you add the trucking to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Now add the natural gas to keep the lights on and the heat running or the air conditioning running at the grocery store. Now add the carbon tax of driving there. And that's all. That's not even including trains. A lot of people forget that our trains, which haul so many things across our country, use diesel for locomotive fuel. That is also carbon taxed. So this is where you're getting this layer cake from hell when it comes to the carbon tax. And so this is why it's really important that the parliamentary budget officer has done two very good things mathematically here. Again, the CTF has been sounding the alarm for years, but coming from an independent watchdog like this is so valuable. Even with the rebates factored in, the average family in Alberta for the year 2024 is going to be out more than $900 this year, net. That is net, and that is relating to everything Andrew and I just described, of all that layer cake coming from the carbon tax and applying it to the average family in Alberta, you're out almost a thousand bucks. And again, that's with those rebates factored in. The very idea that we could give money to the government and they could magically somehow increase its wealth and make it worth, worth more and give more back than you pay in is nonsense. But to have the PBO do these two things, of pointing out the net cost of the carbon tax and the GST ripoff on top of the carbon tax is really important. And in fact, we'd like to see all parties get on board with this. A little note, we're noticing some movement at the provincial level from the NDP. Hmm. We're seeing, for example, in Saskatchewan, the opposition NDP saying, you know what, we shouldn't be carbon taxed on our home heating. We're seeing Wab Canoe, the NDP Premier of Manitoba, saying very similar things and fully suspending his provincial fuel oh, tax. I mean, look, when, when the, the government's uh, carve-out for Atlantic Canada was one of its biggest tactical blunders because they had basically beaten the provinces into submission on the carbon mm -hmm. tax. And then when they did that, all of a sudden, everyone who had an NDP government in Manitoba and even, you know, NDP leaners in Alberta, Saskatchewan, were looking at their leaders being like, whoa, 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 whoa hold up, why, why do they, why do they, get, uh, they get a pass? on this. Jack Layton, the late leader of the federal NDP, said it would be wrong to punish people with a carbon tax on their home heating fuel. Mm -hmm. Folks should go back and read that, including sitting members of parliament within the NDP who are propping up this government and supporting home heating fuel carbon taxes. I wanted to turn to a bit of a, a better story here. I, I began the show talking about this uh, climate change free speech trial I, I'm covering mm. in Washington, D.C. this week. But uh, we have this vilification of the oil and gas sector by a lot of sectors of the Canadian political establishment, certainly by the federal government and by many in the media. Well, it was a bit refreshing for Alberta Premier Danielle Smith to uh, declare that she wanted to double oil production in Alberta. She did this in her sit down with Tucker Carlson last week. I, I think it was in Edmonton. It might have been in Calgary or it might have been both for all I know. But uh, really, really bold plan here. Now, first off, can the premier make that commitment? Sure, if she wants to. Uh, so the government doesn't, you know, we don't have crown corporations that are mm -hmm. solely monopolistically pulling oil out of the ground or mining it as bitumen. Uh, but if so, it would be, never make it out. Could you imagine? You know, yeah. forget it. They would they would get into squabbles and yeah, it wouldn't work. So she can declare this as a goal and say that's what she wants to see and encourage private companies to just go for it here. The problem here though is how much of an obstacle is the federal government going to make of itself? 
We've already seen that the government fully thinks that they have full control over natural resources in Alberta, and we're just supposed to bow to their bidding. Uh, spoiler alert, that's not true. And we recently had a great Supreme Court decision on the pipelines issue there, too. It was in Alberta's favor. So for her to say that is great. And it also inspires confidence in companies because, of course, they want to come here and then do business. Or if they're already here, they want to realize that they have a pro-business premier and they want to do more business. Again, though, the devil's always in the details. Can we actually get this happening without the federal government trying to strangle us? What I just like from a tactical point of view is how much attention that gets. So for her to sit there with somebody with the reach of Tucker Carlson and mm -hmm. obviously triggering the reactions of uh, some uh, members of parliament and ministers in the federal government to the point where they have to hold a press conference. I actually heard, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, Andrew. I actually heard uh, it was an NDP strategist say that he should have been stopped at the border. Like prevented from coming into Canada. Like, Whoa. Yeah. That's so, well, it's uh, yeah, it's the emergencies act approach basically of just we don't like what they're going to say, so let's just use these weird legal tools to prevent them from saying it. But just use a thought process experiment here. Imagine Rachel Motley is still leader of the NDP. Imagine she invites MSNBC's Rachel Maddow up to Alberta and they have a talk and there's people that come to the arena and they listen to I don't know, solar blenders and e-bikes and whatever it is they want to talk <laughs> about. Can you imagine like people saying she should be stopped at the border. Like, I don't care if you agree with what the person saying, that's the whole point of free expression. Uh, but to say somebody should be stopped at the border really opened my eyes quite a bit. So I think this is part of the reason why Premier Smith uh, made that statement. Was to say, yeah, yeah. I, I'm inclined I, to agree. And, and look, when I was in uh, Davos, not this year, but last year, I, I ran into Joe Manchin, who's the a senator who is a Democrat in West Virginia, but he's the most right-leaning Democrat, certainly on energy issues. He was one, Jason Kenney brought him up to, to tour the oil sands. And I, oh, I had yes. spoken about that. And, and, he, and he was saying, Senator Manchin, like, yeah, you know, I would love it if the United States were saying, we, we want to buy all this Canadian oil. So I, that's the real danger here is that you have a, a Premier Daniel Smith who's saying, yes, let's get it to market. You've got buyers out there, but you have these, I mean, to appropriate Paul Liev's term, these gatekeepers, both at the Canadian government federally, the provincial government in BC and provincial government in Quebec that are doing everything they can to landlock Canadian energy. It, they are. And for the the folks who are watching this for whom emissions is their key issue, like it keeps them up at night, this is actually one of the best paths to reducing global emissions. So the United States of America reduced its emissions without carbon taxes. They did so largely by expanding natural gas production, which has far fewer emissions than other forms of fuel. And again, this is something Premier Smith has said independently. This is something other political leaders have said independently. Places like India are desperately asking to purchase our natural gas. And that will also have the great benefit of reducing their very heavy global emissions. So this is the non-carbon tax path forward to doing that exactly. And as a great side bonus, you're employing lots of Canadians under very strong labor laws and very strong environmental laws. So it was really interesting to see her smile and say, yeah, let's double the production. I think she was trying to provoke a little bit more conversation there. 
Yeah, fair enough. And, and she certainly did it. I mean, all of the people that were, uh, you know, clutching their pearls about how dare she take the stage with a guy that filled out uh, two stadia there uh, was actually uh, like they, they weren't even debating and discussing the things that she was saying there, because I think there was nothing uncontroversial. And if you're in Alberta and your lifeblood is the thriving of that sector, absolutely. You're like, yeah, come on. I'm, I'm all in on this. So, all right. Well, great to talk to you as always, Chris Sims. We will check in with you next week, but uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Have fun. All right. That does it for us for today. Keep in, uh, I was going to say keep in mind and keep tuned in at the same time. And it was just going to be this amorphous mass of words. But I will say stay tuned for the remainder of the week. We'll have trial updates and also uh, some well, modified editions. We're still going to do the show. They're, they're going to look a little bit differently, but we'll, some, we'll have the Andrew Lawton show continue in its own way over the next few days. And we'll be back into the studio before long. Hope you have a wonderful rest of the day, though. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on true north thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news